Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a language-driven exercise. This is available in both hemispheres. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, and I'm in a good mood. I just finished my novel. I finished my novel. So that happened. Uh, It's the novel that I've been working on for the past two years. It has been a long and sometimes arduous process. Uh, For those of you who listen regularly, you've heard about it, but uh, the good news is it appears to have come to fruition. The manuscript is now finished. It is a book. It is a stack of pages, and I'm very happy about it. I'm uh, I'm happy that it has been, at long last, externalized. It's a good feeling after two years of labor. So to celebrate, I figured I would read a few tweets on the air. Why not do that? Why don't I read some recent tweets from my Twitter account, at Brad Listy, some extremely revealing, deeply personal, psycho-spiritual tweets. Should I do that? Let's do that. Here we go. If you were a black belt in karate and a grizzly bear charged you, would you try to do karate on the bear?
said to myself, you're tweeting into the void while imagining myself alone in space, somehow accompanied by a howling wind sound effect. Just asked my dog, why am I doing this, without really knowing what this was referring to. Oh, Jesus, constantly increasing complexity. Wife just said, last night while you were sleeping, you smelled weird. Has there ever been a porno film called Neil Young? Am at a house. There is a white Doberman. Burrito. Autocorrect. Burrito. At the zoo with my daughter feel like an orangutan just asked me telepathically for a Xanax. Okay, uh, so there you go, folks. That is it. That is uh, some uh, tweeting from my Twitter account. I hope that was enjoyable. hope that was a uh, nice uh, little mood music, a little window into my soul. And uh, speaking of windows into people's souls, let me now give another quick plug for my brand new book just published by TNB Books, co-authored with Justin Benton. It is out this week, making its way into the world. It is called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. It is a work of literary collage. It is nonfiction. It is experimental in nature, and its contents are derived entirely from the comment boards at the nervousbreakdown.com, my online literary magazine and a culture magazine and blog type situation. And as far as I know, there's never been a book quite like it. Uh, I think it speaks to the way we live now digitally. It reads like a long and interesting and funny and unusually candid and emotionally involving conversation. So please go get it. Get, get, get yourself a copy. Read it. Let me know what you think. It is available in trade paperback or in ebook format wherever books are sold online. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is T.C. Boyle. It is a great thrill to have him here on the program. He's one of the most celebrated writers of literary fiction in America, if not the world. 
He's written more than 20 books of fiction in his career, including World's End, The Road to Wellville, The Tortilla Curtain, and Drop City. He has been the recipient of many awards, including the Penn Faulkner Award, and his latest novel is called San Miguel, which is available now from Viking. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, here is my conversation with the great T.C. Boyle. Well, Brad, what I am doing is I am in my house, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and is entirely made of windows, and I'm looking out into woods. I'm on the second story uh, in the space my wife uses as an office, and it needs to be cleaned up. It looks as if we're moving, but we're not. Well, I want to I ask you about this house. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been prepping for this interview, and I've been reading about this house, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking at some pictures online. It's a beautiful home, and mm-hmm. it's in Montecito. It just seems ideal. Is it, is it ideal? <laughs> uh, like all houses, it is in imminent danger of turning into dust. You know, you go away for a couple hours, and you come home, and if uh, the house is still standing, it's a miracle. This is uh, from 1909, and it never had any foundations. So the first thing we did was pour foundations around the house. It was listing to the east. It's uh, made entirely of redwood, and it is home to many, many rats, many, many, many rats who have preceded me and will be here long after I'm gone. <laughs> so do you have cats or anything? Do you have to, like... Uh... We, uh, you know, you know, I'm an environmentalist, and I wrote When the Killing's Done, in which Dave LaJoy, the uh, radical uh, uh, animal rights guy, uh, talks about the misery of the rat dying from decon along the road. And then, of course, you have secondary poisoning. So um, what I've been employing lately is my daughter's big black alley cat, one of the biggest black cats I've ever seen. She adopted it when she was living in Los Feliz, and now she's moved up here to Santa Barbara and brought it with her. And every once in a while, we'll lift up that little board that leads into the attic and just let the cat up there for a while. <laughs> it's a good that puts the fear into him, boy. <laughs> Not to mention the cat comes back with blood on its whiskers. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, think, that that's as, uh, I think that's fair, right? That's, it's better than poisoning them. You, you, know, you at least give them a fighting chance. Yep. Absolutely. So, in terms of the actual architecture of the place, because I, you know, I, I know little about architecture, but obviously Frank Lloyd Wright um, is about as famous as it gets in that field. Like, what, uh, what about the house uh, distinguishes it, and what, you know, are there other elements of it or aspects of it that uh, occur in his work or reoccur in his work that you, you know, particularly like? Yeah. Well, uh, this is. Uh 1909, so it's his prairie style. That is, it has uh, big uh, open vistas all across the house and outside, and it has the uh, cantilevered overhangs and so on. It's made entirely of redwood, as I said. And it looks, to some degree, like a miniaturized version of his own taliesin that he built two years later in uh, in Spring Green, Wisconsin. In fact, uh, my daughter, her, her beau, Jameson Fry, make trailers for, for authors, and they've made the last four for me because I have a special in with them, and uh, they made the women, uh, you know, just a three-minute trailer with actors and so on, and it's a very ambitious little film, and uh, in it, the scene is portrayed in which uh, uh, the maniac kills uh, Mama Borthwick Cheney, 
and you do see the house of Taliesin, but it's not actually Taliesin. <laughs> it's this house, <laughs> which had to do as a uh, sexodanium for the real house, which was far away in Wisconsin. Right. But it looks pretty good. It looks all right. I mean, you wouldn't know uh, entirely or exactly unless you'd been to Taliesin. It's the magic of movies, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, uh, like, with, with Frank Lloyd Wright in mind, like, one of the things I did want to ask you about is... Um, the reoccurrence of narcissistic, you know, of narcissistic guru type figures in your fiction. Can you talk a little bit about your fascination with these types of figures? And then, uh, I guess it's also, uh, you know, worth noting that you often um, look at them through the point of view of women. And I'd just be interested to hear you talk about why you're drawn to these kinds of people and what you've learned from having written about them through the years. Well, that's a great observation, and um, you know I don't plan these things out; it just kind of happens. So, you know, I've written about uh, John Hardy Kellogg in The Road to Wellville, and uh, Alfred C. Kinsey in The Inner Circle, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, to Mungo Park in my first uh, my first book, uh, Water Music. Um, what fascinates me about them, and the the first three I, I like to call the great egomaniacs of the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> is that, um, you know, all novelists, except me, because, of course, I am a saint, are exactly <laughs> like this. And they uh, they invite the world in, but only on their own terms. Um, I've always been suspicious of authority and uh, suspicious of the snake oil salesman. Or anybody who says, uh, you know, give yourself over to me and I will redeem you. And in essence, that's what these men did. On the other hand, they each created something great. Uh, like novelists, they have an idea, and they will see that idea to completion no matter who it hurts or, or what it costs, because they have a vision. So, okay, so let me try, let's try to like break this down, because I think that's true. You know, when it comes to writing, you, you do have to sort of elbow out all the different distractions and in some cases the different responsibilities that can compete for your time in order to get creative work done. And, you know, I guess one of the questions that arises is do the ends justify the means? Yeah, of course. That is the, the question that I'm asking in these books. And uh, I think that is up to the viewer or reader to decide. Um, you know, an artist doesn't really owe anybody anything. You know, you don't have to be politically correct. You don't have to be nice. Uh, you don't have to uh, write things that are morally uplifting. All you have to do is write or create something that is great. Um, who judges that? Well, I don't know. But um, that's what an artist is supposed to do. And maybe to some degree, as you suggest, the ends do justify the means. But I'm interested in examining that and have examined it many times over. And, and in your own like in your own life and work, you know, you seem to have done uh, you know several things. A couple of which um, are that you've had a very successful run. You've been extremely prolific, and you've had, in, in a lot of ways, I think, kind of the dream career for a writer of literary fiction. Um, but at the same time, you've also managed, uh, it seems like, to create um, a really good balance. You know, you have a family and a home and uh, you teach and you do it all. And, and I'm curious to know how you've managed to do that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a little bit of a control freak like the people I write about. Um, for instance, as you know, Brad, I've never had anything to do with Hollywood. 
uh, even though the temptations are there. And I love films because I don't want to work in collaboration with anyone. I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine making a creative decision with someone else or having something that I've created um, uh, be taken away from me. So that's not going to happen. Um, I, uh, I very much value loyalty. I'm the only writer in history, as you, I think you know, who's only had one wife, for instance. Um, uh, you know, the same agent I've had since I was in college. I've had the same publisher and the same editor, um, uh, the same publishers in France and Germany as well, uh, and even in England um, for the last, I don't know, 15 years or 17 years I've had. I've been with the same publisher there, too. Um, my closest friends are... Uh, men, young men whom I met when I was a boy, my oldest friend, uh, Alan Arcolay, uh, I always introduced to my wife in this way. He's still in New York. I've known him since I was three and a half. And she and he are very jealous of one another. And I will always say to her, well, now I'm going to call Alan Arcolay my oldest and dearest friend, whom I knew and loved 18 years before I met you. <laughs> So it's like creating a sta creating that stable environment, but it's just it just sounds wise to me. You know, I mean, it's it, it seems strange, and I, I you know I think we could probably spend the entire hour trying to pick apart why somebody would need that much chaos in their life in order to do their creative work. You know, everybody's but, different, everybody. and as I like to say, when I hear guys, uh, you know, at the bar complaining about their ex wives, I love to thrust myself in and say, "Well, my first wife was such an incredible pain in the ass that I've stayed with her all these years." <laughs> What's the secret? What's the secret? I don't know. I, I guess I got lucky, and plus we're uh, we're the same values, of course, and uh, there is uh, there is that. But uh, we're we're kind of pretty much uh, opposites, uh, polar opposites in a lot of ways in our in our uh, talents. That's for sure. What, what does your wife do? Is she a writer? She's not a writer, obviously. If, if you're a she's a mama, she's she is a mama. Okay, um, and has been uh, for a long while now since our daughter was born. Um, yeah, she's, you know, she's artistic and, uh, she's mathematical and she's a computer whiz and all of that. Um, she lives in her own world and, uh, we tolerate each other. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I've always been fascinated because there are couples, you know, that, you know, where both of them are writers and my wife is not a writer. 
Um, and I, I, you lucky man. I, I can't imagine. That's what I. It's think. like your enemy is in bed with you. You know, I, I, just like the. I mean, just the, <laughs> you never you never be able to get away from it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah. It's a lot of literariness, and I like I can only handle one of me in a relationship, essentially. You know, <laughs> like. Um, yeah, I agree with you, but of course I know you know writers who've married other writers, and uh, they've been perfectly happy for a couple of weeks, and then they both commit suicide. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, with regard to your uh, control freak uh, nature, and I, you know, I think that's also quite common among writers to want to sort of have, uh, you know, the, their own domain and to be able to control the various aspects of their life and work. And I think it's common for writers to not enjoy, like you said, working in collaboration with others. But, um, you know, one aspect of it that I want to ask you about uh, with regard to collaboration and loyalty is the fact that you have stayed with the same. Uh, editor for all these years and with all of the success that you've had and the uh i don't know i think at a you've achieved you've attained a certain level uh of success that i wonder do you stop getting edited at a certain point or do you ask for pushback from your editor like how does that collaboration work for you at this point um, I've never really uh, needed much by way of editing. I, I simply need someone to uh, publish the work, look at it, and publish it. I have a very close relationship with both my agent and my editor, who are my first readers. But essentially, what you see in print is what I deliver. I, again, I'm a fanatic uh, perfectionist. I'm not saying that I'm complacent and I don't listen. Uh, my editor patiently goes through and gives me uh, comments, and we work back and forth. But essentially... It's a finished work that I give to him. Everybody works in a different way. I know that some writers need uh, collaboration with editors and uh, through all phases of the writing of a book. I don't. I write it on my own, and then I give it in. And, uh, and Paul Slovak at Viking, my editor, all these years, will respond, and uh, I'll send it back to him. In fact, we just went through this again for T.C. Boyle Stories 2, the Collective Stories Volume 2, which is coming out next year. And Paul had questions about various things, and I responded, and you know, I made some small changes. But essentially, um, this is this is it. I'm giving finished work. This this book, by the way, will be equally fat as the first one. It contains an entirely new volume, A Death in Kitchewink, and other stories. And at Paul's suggestion, it has a foreword by the author. That's me. Um, <laughs> and, and if it feels a little valedictory, well, perhaps so. But I'm still, as far as I know, in good health, and I may even uh, write a few more stories after this. But for next October, that's what we've got: T.C. Boyle stories too. Cool. So now, and with regard to finishing, you know, finishing work and handing it over and having very little to do editorially, what does it look like for you? Because you're so prolific. Uh, it seems like someone who would hand over a book that's essentially done, time in and time out, would be. Like, like, what does it look like for you when you're editing your own work? How are you getting it done so quickly? <laughs> Is it coming out of you in one shot and it's pretty much good? And Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, cu I'm curious to know about the process. I'm sure I work in the way of most writers intuitively. I don't know what it will be. Um, I usually have some kind of structural idea at the beginning, and uh, it starts and I follow it. Uh, I'm rewriting constantly every day. Uh, everything I can't move on unless I feel everything behind me is is solid, uh, perfect, as perfect as it can be. Uh, I know some writers will, uh, you know, write in a burst and go back and clean things up and switch scenes around and so on. I'd be in the mental hospital if I had to do that. I'm progressing very slowly, day by day, sentence by sentence. Um, 
and and uh, hoping to new, make new ex, uh, discoveries every day and move forward. So, you know, if this goes on every day, uh, eventually you have a manuscript. Yeah. <laughs> and, you're, and then you send it in, and if, if you're lucky, people like it, it's published, and, uh, and here we are talking on the phone. It's all good. So what about, okay, so no outline. Do you do an outline? No, I don't have an outline. Uh, right now I'm in the process of getting ready to start a new novel. I would be writing it even now, except I've been on tour almost continuously since September 17th, and I've just got home uh, a couple of days ago. Um, so I really couldn't start a book in the middle of all that chaos. So now I'm looking over notes and thinking a little more deeply about it and wondering what exactly it will be. Um uh, I'm hoping to start writing when I get up to the mountains uh, in December, January. I'm not sure. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, of, uh, some years ago, I wrote a book called Talk Talk, which is about an identity thief. I was fascinated by this idea of, of stolen identity and who, who, what is your identity? How do you know who you are? Uh, because you're acculturated, of course, because you have language. Um, that is your deepest identity. And I'd read all about identity thieves and so on, but I really wasn't getting very deeply into it or not beneath the surface. And I happened to go to my dentist who, as it happened, had been divorced recently and really had an eye out for the ladies. And uh, when I came in to sit in the chair, he said to me, wow, you should have seen the woman sitting in this chair before you. She was gorgeous. And I said, oh, how interesting. And he said, yeah, and, and she was deaf. And then I began to click a little bit in my mind, even, even as he got out the torture devices and, you know, <laughs> bored and ground away. I realized that my heroine would be deaf. So I studied deaf culture and made my heroine deaf because the deaf have a different culture from ours altogether. We are all one, whether we're, uh, you know, from New Guinea or, or New York, as long as we're hearing culture. All the deaf are one as well, by the same token. They even have, uh, you know, they have this audio um, uh uh, spatial language, uh, I mean, this visual spatial language that that is different from ours. They have different brain paths as a result. And uh, it deepened the book and, and made me think even more about identity. And in fact, that is one book, by the way, I, probably the only one in which I did make an adjustment because of what my agent and editor said. Initially, I had Dana Holter, the heroine, write her own book within the book called Wild Child. She was writing about uh, uh, L'Enfant Sauvage, uh, uh, Victor of Aveyron, uh, who was a feral child found found running naked in France in Napoleonic times. Um, you, I, I removed this novella from the book at their insistence, and I think they were right, uh, published it separately. Um, but you do, you do see her writing it, and you know what its themes are, and you know why she's writing it and how it ties in with the rest of the book. And they and they asked you to ax it. Yeah, when they mentioned it, I began to think about it and realized that they were probably right. So I'm not, you know, entirely. I don't want to say that I'm complacent and I don't listen. I do. Um, it's rare, though. In fact, that's the only example I think of all my books in which something like that has happened. Um, and um, uh, George Bouchard, who is my agent, prides himself on this. He was the one who said it should go and be published separately, and it was as Wild Child and the 13 other stories that came out here in 2010. Um, Europeans, however, uh, the Germans, French, Italians, and so on, uh, the Spaniards, published Wild Child as a separate book. 
And as a separate book, it brought in a separate income. And in fact, um, it became very popular in Germany. And uh, a royalty check came. It was good, a good amount. And uh, Georges couldn't help gloating a little bit <laughs> about it. He might have had to bump his commission up a little bit on that one, right? No, no, we have a handshake deal, and it goes back to my student days. Uh, I love and trust him. He's really uh, the biggest figure in my life, I would say. He's amazing. Um, before I forget, I, I was going to say, um, when I first moved to town, the L.A., um, Christopher Isherwood was alive, and he was interviewed in the paper. And the interviewer was spawning all over him. You know, Mr. Isherwood, you've had this great career. You've, uh, you know, you had the Berlin stories. You, you know, you know everybody. Uh, you know what? You know, looking back, I mean, what what gives you the most satisfaction? He said, getting checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, <laughs> you know, there's something to be said for that. Hey, yeah. uh, and before I forget about George too, I'll tell you a wonderful George story. You know, he's the agent, so. He doesn't rush himself forward. His job is to protect his authors and let them shine and be the stars. But he is extremely witty and, and wonderful. And um, he rarely uh, is in the press, but he was uh, maybe two years ago. I think poets and writers did a long interview with him. It was a wonderful, wonderful interview with him. And in it, the interviewer asked him this. He said, your author, T.C. Boyle, has been quoted, and he quoted me, as saying, George Bouchard is the single, wonderful, most human being ever born in the history of humankind. How do you respond to that? And George said, well, you know, Tom, he tends to exaggerate, pause, but he's often right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the kind of thing I've got in my life, and it's, it's really pretty wonderful. So when it comes to, I mean, it's been so long since you were out looking for an agent, uh, and you've only had one your entire career, but, you know, for people who are listening who might be on the early side of... Uh, you know, their particular road to publication, like how, how important is it to find just the right agent? Do you know what I'm saying? How, how critical has it been to have this particular person representing you and your work um, as good as it may be? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like how, how, how critical is it? And then how critical is it on the other side of it to find just the right editor and publisher? Those relationships seem um, important or, you know, it's a, how do you measure it? To me, they are. To me, they're very important. As I said earlier, I, I love the sense of of loyalty and tradition. Um, wow. Um, I, I, I don't know how to measure it because I don't know what other people's needs are or how they will acquire agents or what their relationship will be. I do know that some authors tend to bounce around from agent to agent and from publisher to publisher and, you know, might get a big, uh, impressive deal. And, uh, you know, that's a great thing. Um all my books, though, have always been in print because they're going, they're through Viking Penguin, um, and that's a long time back, and I'm very happy about that, uh, and happy to, as I said earlier, of my relationship with 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 Paul and with with George, and with um, you know Jean Claude Fasquel in in, in France, and uh, and uh, uh, Michel Kruger of of Hansa Verlag in in Germany. I mean, I've known these people for years and years and years. Um, Alexandra Pringle with Bloomsbury. These people have been great in my life. So uh, to me, it's enormously important. I don't know about others. Your agent, of course, is you know stands between you and the naked howling universe and uh, and salves your wounds and um, and negotiates for you. Uh, all this is good. Mm. And then what about you know when you were starting out? Like, did you? Is this what you envisioned? 
you know, how much of this has been planned and how much of it has surprised you? Because things have gone very well for you. you know, mm-hmm. like, well, you know how it is, Brad. You, you think uh, your goals change. You think, uh, man, if I could only publish a story in uh, the North American Review, which I did my first story, I'd be, I'd be set. That's it. So I need. Then you think, well, if I could only publish a story in the Paris Review and on and on. And then if I could only publish a book. And once it becomes a reality, you know, you see that the horizons open up, uh, and it, it's great, and it's a spur to your creativity. I think the hardest thing is for artists who are not getting anywhere and, and become discouraged. I don't know how that would be. I, You know, of course, I've had my rejections and discouragements and uh, and all of that over the years. Everyone does. But I've not been an artist who didn't have support. I had support of my agent, my editor, my wife, my friends and family and everybody. And from the beginning, it went, as you say, fairly well. That is, the, the, the critical establishment took me up and, uh, and um, it's, it's encouraged me to continue my work. I don't have to worry so much uh, about uh, will I ever be published, where will I be published, will anyone ever read me, will anyone ever care. Uh, from early on, it's, it's, it's gone along, uh, and that's really um, helped me, I think, have a, have a, a productive career. So, so again, I, I wonder about the artist who uh, might be making great work but never gets any attention or, or income or anything else. What does he or she do? Uh, do they persist, or does that sort of eventually kill the artistic impulse? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you you wonder how many how many of those writers are out there. It seems like there might be a lot, but maybe that maybe oh, not, you know, uh, at least a billion, <laughs> at least a whole billion of them. So, when it comes to the practical aspects of making a living as a writer, were there things or? You know, strategies of thought that you employed that maybe these other people haven't employed? Like, nope. It wasn't any nope. kind of savviness or, or understanding nope. of the marketplace that separated nope. you? Pure luck. Pure luck and, of course, perseverance and fanatical uh, pedal-to-the-metal work my whole life uh, and great desire to make art. I mean, you know, I'm only a fiction writer. I have my Ph.D. is in 19th century British literature. I've taught at USC all these years. I founded their writing program. But I don't want to be a man of letters. I don't want to give speeches or write essays or uh, um, do book reviews or anything like that. I just want to make art because that's what I am. And and there's a joy in creating something. I wrote about this in my essay, This Monkey, My Back, um, in which I liken the creative process to a kind of drug addiction. It is an addiction. um, So that when you create a story and you see it come together from nothing and 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 see the result and see the ending and its beauty um you are on a high just a surge of high but then as with any drug it wears off quickly and you want to do it again and again and i haven't got to the end of that yet yeah i mean you work I hope seven, i never do you work 7 days a week i do i do indeed and what happens if, like, if something, if you know, circumstances intervene and you you have to take a couple of days off? Do you get grumpy and start to get? Well, it, well, I have not been able to do that since Ribbon Rock in 1998. To go straight through Ribbon Rock for some reason, it's 14 months to write it. I went straight through without having to go anywhere. Ever after, every book has been interrupted by book tours, and um, 
that's okay. I've learned to live with that. While I'm on the airplane, I'm thinking about it. Uh, I haven't written, I haven't begun the new book yet, but I did the research before the book tour so that at least I was able to have some research materials with me and to be brooding about it and thinking about it. Um, everything in its place. Uh, you, you won't see much of me next year until October when I'll be doing a, a brief tour, I hope a brief tour for GC Ball Stories 2. I'll be working on the new book. So, you know, I, I very much put it in its place, the, the, the public uh, performer and the, uh, and the private person. So, okay, so what about the, um, the writing period for a novel? Obviously, you know, there's, there's books of varying lengths, and so I'm sure that affects how much time it takes. But have you noticed over the years that there's a similar span of time that it tends to take you to, to, to write a novel? Yeah, well, it's going to be a year or more. Uh, the early novels, uh, big ones, Water Music and World's End, took three years each. Uh, a book that is as complex and required as much research as something like The Women, which I was able to do in 14 months. I think the reason being, uh, I understand that um, you usually create more work uh, prior to death than after death, so I've speeded <laughs> up a bit. So I want to, uh, speaking of this, uh, this is actually a perfect moment to sort of segue, but I want to read you your own words. Uh, this is a quote, and I, I don't know, I think it was from an interview, but I wrote it down because I liked it, and I wanted to get your, uh, your thoughts on it. Uh, so here you are, quote, Life is tragic and absurd, and none of it has any purpose at all. Science has killed religion. There's no hope for the future with seven billion of us on the planet, and the only thing you can do is laugh in the face of it all, end quote. <laughs> so that seems like an accurate uh, reflection of greater thematic concerns in your work and, and the way that it's been executed over the years. Um, I guess a question that comes to mind for me uh, is like when it comes to like climate change or when it comes to the circumstances of the world as we find them now, are we past the point of no return? Like, are you really that much of a fatalist? Or, like, you know what I'm saying? Well, I've been writing about it for most of my life. You know, my first book is called Descent of Man, after <laughs> Charles Darwin. So, uh, yeah, um, this is my major theme and my major concern. But, of course, uh, Brad, you don't know this when you start writing. I can only see this as I look back, and I can see how the books are allied and, and where my concerns lie. Um, it looks pretty grim for our species, as any environmentalist will tell you, um, what to do about it. Nothing. There's nothing to do about it. Uh, you know, in our own way, we are greener. We, we, green didn't even exist when I was a kid. Um, I'm a fanatic of, of recycling. My uh, property here is natural. Uh, I've invited the creatures to live here. It's, uh, I've dug a pond uh, on the property. Uh, we have, I've planted um, uh, lots of uh, uh, Mexican milkweed for the uh, uh, the monarchs that, that 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 roost here in the winter and so on, um, even the rats, <laughs> even the rats, I'm pretty gentle with. <laughs> um, but it really doesn't matter, you know. I went from the embrace of Roman Catholicism as a boy, at about the age of eleven and twelve. I told my mother this doesn't make sense to me, and to her good grace, she said, "Okay, well, you don't have to deal with that anymore." into the um, the lap of the existentialist when I was 17. And uh, there's no going back. Yeah, you know, I, I had kind of a... I was raised Catholic as well, and I think I had a similar time frame. I don't know if I went... 
Uh, I don't know if I, if I intellectualized it quite as thoroughly, but I, I just sort of at, at 11 or 12 was, you know, I uh, just sort of threw my hands up and, uh, you know, like the theme that you, that you continually write about in, in your work and the way that you approach, uh, humanity from a, a man as animal perspective, that Darwinian kind of, uh, view, I think is a natural response to the crumbling of one's religious foundation. No? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, this is why we hate fundamentalism so much. The fundamentalist, whether it's of uh, Christian or Islam or Judaism or whatever it is, you know, has to um, proselytize and assert to everyone the absolute undeniable and unshakable faith that he holds. Because if the slightest sliver of doubt enters, the whole thing comes crashing down. We, you and I, have already brought it crashing down. There's no Jesus. There's no God. There's no Santa Claus. There's no magic. The world is an animal place, and life exists for one purpose only, is to replicate more life. How do you deal with that? And furthermore, yeah, okay, the loss of God, but what about science, which is equally voodoo at its root because it doesn't give us the answers we want. And yet the science that we understand today with regard to uh, uh, environmental collapse, for instance, and the overpopulation of an animal species, which is uh, about to come crashing down, that is us, is pretty depressing to deal with. You know, it used to be that novelists, well, not only were novelists necessary because there was no TV or video games at one time, uh, I like to remind my students of that, but they don't believe me. Um, but, uh, you know, you could hope that your work would live after you and you would be adding to the sum of culture, but it looks as if there's going to be no culture. There's going to be some kind of crash. Now, maybe every old person thinks this as you get older, you know. Uh, maybe that's true. I don't know. I haven't had any experience being old. I'm just a neophyte, you know. But... Um, when you do look at the environmental impact of our species and the fact that the population of the world has doubled since I was born, um, it is cause for concern. Yeah, to say the least. And I think that also like this, I think that on a, you know, on a broader level, maybe the apocalyptic sense has always been a part of man's DNA. I mean, I th- you, know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you look at history and like there's always been kind of a sense of foreboding and uh, across cultures that we're heading towards some sort of wall. <laughs> and uh, I guess the question is, can it be averted? Oh, you know, that's, that's the question. And now that I'm a, a new father, you know, I look at my daughter and I'm thinking to myself, what do I tell her? <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, I know. I know it's, a, it's a, it's a real conundrum and it's a, it's a, it's the problem. It's the central problem of the environmental movement. The environmental movement has nothing but bad news for everybody. And further, you talk about preserving wild places uh, and preserving animal species that people will never see. And they don't really know what you're talking about because most people in the world have an impoverished view of nature because there's precious little of it left. For me, I grew up in in New York, in the suburbs of of New York City, um, in the 50s and 60s, in in a place that was verdant and lush and uh, there were plenty of woods around us. Spent my childhood like Huckleberry Finn, you know, playing ball and running through the woods and so on. And so I have a real experience of that and a real need for it to this day, which, again, is why I choose to live where I am right now, 
where on a good night I can see the Milky Way from the lawn, and yet I'm only three blocks from the water and uh, and two blocks from the lower village, uh, so I, I can walk there. And also to go to the mountains and the sequoias where, you know, I'm not going to Mammoth uh, to hang out in bars with ski bunnies. I don't want to do that. I mean, I have enough uh, public life running around the world, uh, you know, being on stage. I want to be up there and be by myself, uh, for better or worse, to, to, to brood, to walk out of the woods um, and let my thoughts go numb and just to be like a child again and just see things and say, oh, wow, look at that, uh, you know, because every day you can walk the same path every day, but it's different. Mm. And are you camping up there, or do you have, like, a cabin that you're staying in? I rent a cabin. Um, I love this place, more than a place on Earth, and um, I bought a lot there in 1989 thinking that I would build a house. But then I realized, not only is it environmentally insensitive, but um, I'd be in the mental hospital. Uh, wrapped in chains if I had to worry about two houses and I would go up there and, and have to fix it instead of going up there and just work. So uh, it will be the Boyle Squirrel Preserve forever and um, I will be uh, renting <laughs> as long as I can. Um, so I want to ask you about your uh, childhood and your education as a writer. So uh, you know, I'm interested to know I know that you have a musical background, for example, and I know that you started off thinking that it was going to be music, but can you talk just a little bit, you know, like kind of uh, adding on to what you just said about having a Huckleberry Finn existence as a boy, uh, can you talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the dawn of your creative life? Like, how did it happen? How early in your life did you know that you were heading in this direction? Mm. Well, of course, you look at me today and you can see how skinny I am. I've been skinny all my life because I'm hyperactive. But as I've been pointing out to people lately, we didn't have Ritalin and psychiatrists. We were a working-class family. What we had was a back door. So <laughs> that's how my mother dealt with it, and I was outside most of my childhood. And we were a working-class family. I'm the first ever to go to college. My father was raised in an orphanage to educate till the eighth grade. My mother was salutatorian of her class at Peekskill High School. But, of course, it was the Depression, and she was from a poor family and was never educated beyond that. We had good public schools, though, uh, which is an essential thing about America, which uh, I think, uh, you know, I hope that um, our president and uh, and the Democrats will help us to keep education in the forefront. I'm a product of public schools and public universities as well. As well. So, yeah, so... Um, uh, I first time I we didn't have books much. I didn't read much as a kid. Uh, we had TV, which is why I resent TV to this day. Um, the first I ever understood that a cultural thing that was great was John Coltrane. I was a saxophone player as a boy, and I would listen to him endlessly and blow along uh, as best I could, not having any idea exactly how he was doing or what he was doing, but but, but digging it and really loving the soul and the anger of it, you know? Um, how, and I could play the hell out of my instrument. I could sight-read anything. I could transpose things, uh, you know. But I really didn't have a feel for the music we were expected to play, and I flunked my audition. I went to SUNY Potsdam in music school for New York State colleges. And since I was there, um, I declare, you have to declare a major, so I declared history. I'd always liked history. I felt I could be good at it. Second year, we had to take uh, 
a required course in American literature, and I discovered Flannery O'Connor and John Updike and some others, and declared a double major in history and English. Junior year, I blended into a creative writing classroom, um, and then realized what I wanted to do, and a few years later, I grew up and and, and, and pursued that. I went to the Ira Writers Workshop and also stayed there and got my PhD in 18th century British, as I said earlier. Um, well, I actually wanted oh, to ask you about Iowa because, you know, reading up on you, um, obviously Iowa's sort of the, 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 the benchmark school for MFA programs, but uh, your time there seems like it was particularly good. You had uh, interactions or you took classes with Vance Borgeli, uh, John Irving, John Cheever, you knew Raymond Carver, all these guys. Yeah, and you know a lot of people in in my era, because I was there five and a half years, are you know well known uh, writers today. Um, about half of them actually emerged as, as really uh, well known and, and, and terrific writers. You know Stuart Dybeck and Tracy Kidder and. And Jane Smiley and, and Michelle Hunovan, uh, uh, Jane Ann Phillips, uh, Ron Hansen, uh, David St. John, uh, on and on. It's 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 it's, it's, it's uh, Dennis Johnson. Uh, it's it's a great list of, of people who were all there at the same time, and I'm sure that the uh, workshop is still doing that. Um, I didn't know of any other workshop, even though I was in New York and you know 30 miles away from NYU and Columbia. All I'd heard of was Iowa. My heroes had, had taught there and gone to school there. And I was lucky enough to get a story published. And I, on the basis of that, I applied, and I was lucky enough to get in. And it uh, transformed my life. So what about some stories like John Cheever? What was he like? <laughs> John Cheever then uh, had all, his only experience of teaching. I, I believe he had just taught a single class at Sing Sing Prison. Uh, you know, he was uh, thinking, I guess, of Falconer at that time, and he so he didn't really teach or no teaching. He, you know, he had his education. He didn't even have a high school degree. He was kicked out of the Thayer Academy for smoking at the age of seventeen, and now he was uh, sixty-two years old, and he was uh, he was sort of uh, running from his life in uh, in Austin, in New York, and uh, there he was. He was uh, very drunk all the time, <laughs> uh, uh, very uh, sad uh, in a way, but also, uh, you know, satiric, uh, witty, and uh, was a, a, a great mentor to me. He, he just promoted my work. None of them really said anything to me other than, uh, you know, you're doing the right thing, kid. Go for it. People think you go to a, a writing program and you will learn great secrets and and, and and become a great writer through that. No, you do it on your own. It's like a conservatory. It's like going to Juilliard to play your instrument. You know, you already know how to play it. Now you'll have time to, to deepen your response and to work with other artists. Um, so uh, John was, uh, was, was really a, a wonderful influence in my life because... He was John Cheever, and he liked what I was doing. So too Vance, and so too John Irving. And then what about Ray Carver? What was he like? Ray came through town in a couple of different periods then. The first time he was, he'd been out of the workshop some years prior to when I got there. He was struggling. He was still married to Marianne. Uh, he was looking for a job, and they wouldn't give him one. 
we knew he was great. He was publishing all over the place the stories that would be in Will You Please Be Quiet, Please. The second time he came around, that book had been published to great acclaim, front page New York Times Book Review, and uh, they gave him a job. Um, uh, and so uh, off and on I got to know him. I, I met him by walking into his office and saying, Ray, let's talk magazines and editors, because I was trying to publish stories too. And he knew everything and was very open and uh, and kind. Mm, and after, I remember after uh, the book came out, he came and gave a reading for us. And he, as you know, he was very shy and didn't want to give readings, um, unlike me. Uh, and he gave a wonderful reading of Nobody Said Anything, which is my favorite story in Will You Please Be Quiet, Please, in a, in a lounge, a student lounge, you know, where about 50 of us gathered and... Uh, it was dark, and he had one little lamp, and he had his face turned away and his face down and kind of muttered the story. But it was still absolutely great because we loved the story and we loved him. You know, he didn't have to be on stage uh, performing like uh, like Stanley Elkin, by the way, who was the best reader of his own work I ever heard, who came through a few times. Um, you know, everybody's different, and uh, I, I loved Ray. We all loved Ray for, for who he was and what he did on the page. And so when you like, you know, the, the things you were saying earlier about graduate writing programs and how they function as sort of a conservatory, uh, you know, that's something that I feel can sometimes be missed by people who enroll in, in these programs is that they expect to show up and be made into writers. But, you know, like you say, you have to sort of do it on your own. And the, 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 the program and the people who work in it are kind of there um, in a decidedly supporting role. So I'm wondering prior to, you know, you obviously wrote uh, a story that got you into Iowa. But I'm wondering, like, in, in, you know, how much and how often were you working as a writer prior to your arrival there uh, in Iowa? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, were you an everyday yeah. writer at that point before you even no, got there? No, not at all. No, I, but I was, I was starting to grope towards the idea of being a writer, and uh, the impulse had got hold of me. And, you know, you may know about my years in New York. I was uh, pretty, pretty wild and, and deeply engaged in the drug scene and the music scene and all of that. And... Uh, uh, looking like I was going nowhere, but it occurred to me that, um, you know, you can't sit at the bar uh, 365 nights in a row uh, with a bunch of deadheads at 2.30 a.m. <laughs> and accomplish anything in life. There's got to be more to life than this, and I discovered it in writing stories that began in that period, and I had written a number of them. Um, one one in my first book, a piece called Drowning, which, by the way, Cheever had, had, had singled out and, and liked, which which was great, um, was one I wrote before I went to Iowa. Everything else that I've ever published uh, came after came after that. Mm. So, and with regard to drug experiences, you know, do you find, you know, for all of, the, for all of their ills, because this is something I wrestle with, you know, it's a, it's a difficult topic because I don't think it's necessarily black and white, and particularly with respect to the creative arts, you know, like uh, neither of our record collections would exist uh, without drugs. You know what I'm saying? It's not like they're all, it's not like they're they're all um, bad. So I'm curious. The, to, the, you know, I won't be the first to say, Brad, that the, uh, the personality of the writer is one that is given to highs and lows, and uh, and uh, writers are disproportionately a danger for drug addiction and alcoholism and so on. I think it comes with the territory. As it does, I think, with, uh, with with rock and roll musicians too. There's a again, we were talking about this monkey my back. There's a tremendous exhilaration in creating the work, and uh, highs must be accompanied by downs. You know, that's just the way it goes. Um, uh, people, you know, would do uh, methamphetamine and 
and really get up. I don't need it. I was born, uh, you know, uh, uh, caffeinated. I didn't need that. I want to go down. That's what I like. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but do you feel like there was anything from that period of your life that was, I mean, uh, that was instructive or is there any positives from it that opened you up or do you look at it and say, eh, you know, uh, I was better off without it. I've got no regrets. Uh, life is what it is. And as we said at the outset, I've been very fortunate in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I am lucky that I didn't uh, succumb to to addiction and and to all of that, and that I had something to something more in life, and it was reading and writing. And it was, it, it, I mean, it might sound corny, but it saved me. And going to Iowa saved me too, because it got me out of New York at a time when I was just maturing and really wanting to 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 learn things and to be a good writer. Before that, it was sort of a casual, uh, you know, I'll do it at some point, uh, kind of a casual idea. So. To go back to your earlier question about my childhood, no, I had no idea about writing or that I would be a writer. I just was blundering through life as an immature uh, kid in a time when uh, when to be rebellious and to, uh, to, have, to live part of the Calter culture and to do drugs and be dangerous was part of growing up. Well, okay. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask you about San Miguel. And I'd like to hear you just talk a little bit about how it originated for you, because this is the second book in a row uh, for you, I believe, that uh, is set in the Channel Islands. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as I said much earlier in the conversation, I'm lucky in that when I want to find something out, I can uh, pursue it and write a book about it. I want to go to Alaska, find out about that, so I wrote Drop City. Um, Want to know about sex? So I wrote, uh, you know, The Inner Circle about <laughs> Dr. Kinsey. Want to know about Frank Lloyd Wright? So I wrote uh, The Women. Um, the next book after The Women, though, is, uh, aside from the stories, Wild Child, is When the Killing's Done. And I had been reading about the ecology of the Channel Islands. Uh, it was a big controversy in our local papers here. Even the L.A. Times covered it about the removal of invasive species on Anacapa first, the bombing of the rats, and then on Santa Cruz Island, the removal of the feral animals, first the sheep, and then the uh, the pigs had to be killed and left there to die, 5,500 of them. It caused a great controversy, and it's right up my alley because it's talking about invasive species and ecological restoration, uh, and, and also an island uh, set apart, uh, you know, which... Uh, has to work under the principles of island biogeography. So um, I'd wanted to go out there, so I began to go out there, and I got to know the biologists and uh, got to go with the field biologists and so on, and I wrote When the Killing's Done. In the meanwhile, I did a lot of research about the islands in general and discovered the stories that I tell about San Miguel, which is a straightforward historical narrative uh, in the voices of three women who lived there. Uh, and again, it speaks to my themes of... Uh, of um, you know um, a kind of utopian vision of getting away from everybody, being your own boss, uh, uh, living apart from the continent, and I discovered these through Marla Daly, who is uh, head of the Santa Cruz Island Foundation. She's an historian, and she collects material about all of the Channel Islands, and she had helped me uh, with regard to when the killing's done, and uh, and turned me on to the material uh, for uh, San Miguel, and it's based on. Uh, a fragmentary diary left by Marantha Waters in 1888, who was out there for six months. Uh, she was consumptive, 
and uh, uh, died about two years later. But I left just a, a diary that's very fragmentary. You know, uh, she got there on New Year's Day. She left at the end of May. Um, uh, what did they have to eat? How does she feel? What is she doing? And uh, you read between the lines, and it's really quite fascinating. And then there was a second story, much better known, about the Lesters, who became quite celebrated for living there during the Depression, uh, because you know America envisioned this a man, woman, and three beautiful little blonde-haired daughters as uh, as having gotten lucky, uh, because they're self-employed and they live apart from soup kitchens and bread lines and the misery of the Depression. And that story was told in two memoirs, one by Elise Lester, uh, who uh, published it, I think, in 74, and then another by her daughter, Betsy, who is still alive, and published her memoir uh, in the uh, late 90s, I think. Uh, at any rate, uh, Marla turned me on to these materials and a lot of uh, a trove of, of articles uh, that she has kept uh, from uh, the press of the day. And it it, uh, it just seemed natural for me to, to try to uh, inhabit these women and see what it might have been like to live apart as they did well and this, and this is the first book you know that you've written that has been done in, in a in the realist mode you know it's uh, there's no irony it's it's a pretty straightforward telling so uh, what was it like to yes. make that switch because that is a that is a departure for you it was really difficult and i almost gave it up uh, but i persisted i always persist i have written stories of that mode um over the years but never a full-length narrative, and I just wanted to see what it would be like. And again, in some ways, I've come full circle because my first novel, Water Music, about Mungo Park exploring West Africa, is you know your typical postmodern, uh, turning everything on its head sort of novel and making fun of the uh, historical narrative. And now I've tried one myself uh, to see if it's valid. Uh, again, I'm always looking for some new way of telling stories, and it's unusual because this is a very traditional way. Um, I don't know exactly what the mode of the next one will be, but um, it's unlikely that it will repeat what I've just done. I'm always looking for something new. So did you feel, did you have to like resist the temptation to like throw in a yes. zinger you did it's like <laughs> i picture i picture you sort of like yes. at the keyboard you know kind of like hesitating and you know trying well as you know the hardest thing anyway in a long project is maintaining all your tone uh, throughout and uh, this is why it's very difficult to read other novelists while you're actually engaged in writing a novel you don't want tone creeping in so that's hard to begin with and um yeah once I figured out where it was going. That is, that there would not be a male point of view, and I didn't realize that until I was well into it. Um, it settled down, and it seemed uh, natural once I got the drift of what it was going to be. And then what about, you know, when you talk about maintaining tone, uh, you know, like like what I find for me anyway is that like sometimes it'll be like one book of fiction that I can look at or a couple of books or maybe an author who will help me kind of like stay in a certain headspace. But more often than, than not, it's music that I will listen to and it will either be the same artist or the same genre like over and over again to help me get through a project. Like, is that how you, like, does music play a role for you? Yeah, I've never written anything without music playing. It's part of the process. It's the rhythm of it, uh, the beauty of it uh, that, that, that uplifts me. I don't select music 
particularly for a given project. You know, it would be interesting if I'd played, uh, you know, early uh, 20th century music while writing about Frank Lloyd Wright. No, nothing like that. I just have uh, music that I like to listen to while working, and it's mainly classical or the jazz of, of my youth, like John Coltrane, for instance. And I just play it if I feel like hearing it, that particular piece. And um, I listen to Bach a lot and Mozart and so on, string quartets. Uh, I don't listen to rock and roll, though, when I'm working, or actually any vocal music in English. I don't mind. Uh, I can listen to operas and so on, as long as I'm not attuned to what they're saying. That will break the spell. So music is is very, very important to me uh, while I'm working. But you're not like soundtracking the books. It's not like you're like selecting a certain list. No, I mean it would be interesting if I did. And I, it's, it's great to hear that that you're doing that. It's too hard. I mean, I just sit down and uh, put on some music and uh, and get try to get into the spell. That's all. And you work every morning. Is that when you do it? Yeah, and I'm not a you know I'm not a fanatic. I mean, I work until uh, it goes dead. Some days I never I never even get there. And I'm always beginning by rewriting what I've done before and uh, trying to get into that spell. And some days I do and sometimes I don't. But um, once I start a project, I like to be working every day. And there's not like a, you don't hold yourself to like a word count every day or anything like that. You just sit down and you do it for as long as it's going well. And then you then you stop. And do, like, do you try to stop someplace where you know where you know what's going to happen next? And if I'm lucky, sure, of course, or stop where, you know, it's the end of a scene or a chapter or something, sure. But it doesn't always work out that way. And there might be days when I'm hardly working at all, but I'm trying. Which still counts, right? <laughs> Please tell me that still counts. <laughs> I guess. I guess it does. Uh, um, you know, I don't give advice to writers because every writer is different. But I will say this about myself. I would never work on two things at the same time. Uh, I would never, uh, you know, write the kitchen scene out of sequence. Uh, I, I don't think that works. Uh, you have to push through, uh, or you'll never get anything done. And further, it has to be organic. It has to work just as the, the metaphors work, uh, the language works, the the symbology works. On a deeper level, you can't you can't just um, impose that on a work. And I think working out of sequence would be impossible for me. Although I know some writers do it. Well, I'll tell you, it's been uh, a great pleasure to get a chance to talk with you, and uh, I wish you all the best with your next project. I'm, 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 uh, I'm glad you're back from book tour, and you get the chance to get back to work. And uh, I just, I thank you for your time. And likewise, Pat. It's been a pleasure. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. That is T.C. Boyle. Go get his new novel. It is called San Miguel. It is available now from Viking. You can find him online at tcboyle.com. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy, if you would like to read my unnervingly monotone personal tweets. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me and tell me what is happening, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And, uh, hey, please don't forget to go get the app, the official free Other People app. It is available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is completely free, and it is the best way to listen to this program and also to get access to premium content. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the uh, theme music and the transitional music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, what can I tell you? It's late. Can you hear it in my voice? Can you hear the vocal strain? Uh, I had a big day. I was in Riverside earlier. 
speaking at a class on campus for the graduate writing program. That was really fun. They have a great program down there. We were talking about the writing life and uh, whatnot, the struggle, the travails, the digital element, and so on. Please remember that Thelonious Monk died of a stroke and Gandhi suffered from constant constipation. Thanks again for listening, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks to T.C. Boyle. Go get a copy of San Miguel. And uh, while you're at it, get a copy of Bored. Okay? Uh, That does it for now. I'll be back again soon with another podcast. I am now going to fade away. I am now going to fade away. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me?